I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari, and the title of her new book is Future Tense. Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari argues that anxiety is not, as we often refer to it, unhealthy. In fact, it's an evolved advantage that protects us and strengthens our creative and productive powers. Although it's related to stress and fear, it's uniquely valuable, allowing us to imagine the uncertain future and impelling us to make that future better. Distilling the latest research in psychology and neuroscience and offering real-world stories and personal narrative, she shows how we can explore and leverage even very distressing anxiety rather than being overwhelmed by it. She's a professor of psychology and has been featured throughout the media, including the New York Times, Washington Post, CBS, CNN, Bloomberg Television, NPR, and I guess many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tuari. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm going to start by saying, and we we did say this before we went on air, or I said this, I guess, uh, anxiety. <laughs> Uh, anxiety, 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 and everybody I know seems to be anxious. And you said, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. We have to change the paradigm. So let's start with where do we begin? Yeah, exactly right. So we are um, using anxiety to really describe all of the stress and strain of being alive today. It's when I was growing up, actually, stress was that word. You might remember. It's like everything uh, that was difficult, we, we say, oh, it was I'm stressed out, even if it's something good. And now anxiety is describing that. But here's the problem. It's not that we're too anxious today that, that I believe is the problem. I believe it's that we are coping with anxiety in ways, thinking about anxiety in ways that are unintentionally actually making anxiety worse, um, that we've started to really spread. And, and this is on mental health professionals, a lot of this. We've spread this idea that anxiety is always a disease. It's uh, a dysfunction. It's something that needs to be fixed, and we need to protect ourselves from it. But there are two problems with that. One is that that causes us to do a host of unhelpful things when we actually experience anxiety. Um, It causes us to avoid and suppress it, and that's a recipe for spiraling out of control. And the second thing is that we cease to be able to tell the difference between normal, healthy anxiety and an anxiety disorder, which means we're not only pathologizing ourselves and those around us, but we're actually missing the opportunity to see all the ways that anxiety has evolved to be a feature of being human, to actually help us prepare for the uncertain future and to make us more persistent and creative and even socially connected. So it's this so how do we, how do, opportunity how do we, I'm going to stop you there. How do we, yeah. how do we make that distinction? Cause I think that's obviously key. That's important. And, uh, I think one of the statistics that I read that one third of us will struggle with anxiety in our lifetime. That's a lot of people. And you're saying we don't necessarily need to do it if we can make that distinction between, I don't know if you're saying normal, healthy anxiety and bad anxiety. I don't think there's such a thing as bad anxiety. So, and, and the reason I don't think that is because the difference between the emotion of anxiety and an anxiety disorder is that, you know, we can have a lot of anxiety. We can have intense anxiety, but that's not enough to diagnose a disorder. We only diagnose a disorder when the ways that we cope with that anxiety are getting in the way of living life. So imagine that you're uh, a kid 
and uh, you're starting to get nervous about tests and anxious about performing in school, and you start to avoid going to school. You start to actually fail at class because you're never there. You start to cut off from all your friends. So the anxiety about the test was not the problem. It's the way that that person was coping with that anxiety. And over time, if that gets in the way of, in this example, being able to perform in school and, and do and connect with friends, that's when it can actually be diagnosed as a disorder. So what we're doing is we're seeing all signs of anxiety, every feeling we have as a danger signal, when actually anxiety is an emotion that prepares us. It, you know, it's not fear, actually. Anxiety, we think that it's just fight, flight, that fear feeling. But anxiety is actually nervous apprehension about the uncertain future. Fear is about now, someone holding a knife to my neck, and I'm ready to react. Anxiety makes us into mental time travelers, where it's actually priming us to think about the future, to prepare for it, make plans, knowing that something bad could happen, but something good could happen too. So anxiety is actually a tool for navigating the uncertainty of our lives. And is that where anxiety gives us the power of creativity or it has the potential to give us the power of creativity if we see it in a different in the way that you're describing it and also gives us the power I, to taking risks? I think that's another piece of it. I love that. Yes, exactly. Because if we think about anxiety inhabiting that space between now and all the possibilities of the future... Well, that's where creativity exists as well, right? It's about bringing possibilities to fruition. It's about being with that uncomfortable feeling of not knowing what's coming around the bend. Hope is also there. We can be hopeful only about a future that we're not sure of. So I think of anxiety and hope and creativity as being part and parcel of each other. And yes, it can feel like fear. It does feel like fear sometimes, but it has these unique qualities, this you know, this, this aspects of our humanity that actually I think we should be proud of, that we don't have to be frightened of, that we can start to believe, you know, it's not a warning signal all the time. It's information to listen to, to lean into, and we have the power to work with it. In other words, it keeps us from being, uh, I don't know, the word inertia keeps coming up. Like if we weren't anxious, mm. as you're describing it, we would be kind of, uh, Inert. We would be complacent, I guess is the word. We, we wouldn't be motivated. It, it gives us a certain power to go ahead. It's, it's exciting, I guess. I could maybe use that word, too. The anxiety can yeah. be exciting. Yeah, and motivating. No, that's right. Someone um, once, um, it was actually a review I saw on Goodreads of my book, and I'm going to steal it right away because they said, yeah. what this book tells us is that you can be alive with anxiety. I just love that so much because... You know, and I, and I talk about some of this research with creativity and anxiety. What anxiety is, as you said, is an activating emotion. Things like sadness, right, um, ennui, boredom, those are deactivating emotions. They kind of slow us down, and for good reason. Anxi anxiety and other emotions evolve to be helpful. But anxiety is moving us forward. And in research looking at, um, you know, if you actually induce anxiety in someone, make them think about something very anxiety-provoking, and then ask them to do a problem-solving creativity task. People who are anxious are, look very similar to people who are happy <laughs> in terms of their ability to persist in problem-solving, think outside the box, and be innovative. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, people in theater, people, people that I know, who, who performers, painters, pe very creative people, they're usually very anxious, and that is what propels them to be able to perform and do a great job, and or whatever the whatever the arts are. 
and which is, I guess, exactly what you're describing. But what about you personally? What I guess, I, I guess, going back in your career, in your life, in your personal life, how did this? You know, you decided to do research um, on anxiety, and then hence your books, et cetera. But where did this all come from in your personal life? Well, I think there's so many, probably so many <laughs> answers to that. But the first part of the answer for me is that I've really, you know, devoted the past 20 years of my life to understanding and trying to prevent and treat um, anxiety disorders. So I'm very, you know, I've been very committed to this. And I know the suffering that anxiety disorders cause. So I, I never want to underestimate that or diminish that. But after 20 years of being a professional, I, I looked up. And I knew we had loads of great treatments, loads of great self-help and wellness practices. We have science, we have meds, but yet anxiety is only, disorders are only going up. So we're doing something wrong. So it was really this sense of personal failure and bewilderment, I think, that really made me just take a step back. And what I saw is that it's not that the treatments aren't good or that some of this, the, uh, the help that's being offered isn't good. It's that the very first step, how we relate to anxiety, is causing more problems than it helps. That by treating it like an enemy, we're making it our enemy. That by, instead of understanding it's a potential ally that, yes, has to be negotiated with, like a lot of allies, you know, we, we're demonizing it and we're missing all the opportunities to actually work with it. Instead, we've habitually started going around it. Um, there's a great treatment for child anxiety that um, has come out of the Yale Child Study Center. And the essential, um, the essential finding is that kids who struggle with anxiety, parents with all the best intentions, systematically help them go around anxiety-provoking experiences. They try to save them. They try to comfort them at, at every turn. And they never really allow kids to work through anxiety. And that is not parent blaming, but it's part of what kind of prevents kids from learning how to cope effectively. And so this treatment is actually only geared towards the parents teaching them to help kids through rather than around anxiety, not to take it away. And so this is just a small example about how our attitudes, all very well-intentioned about anxiety, are getting in the way of really doing helpful things, which is learning to cope. And how does this fit into... Uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe you were anticipating this question. I don't know, but uh, COVID, because COVID has created a kind of global anxiety, I would say. Um, I mean, you hear about it all the time, not just here in the United States, but most everywhere. So in terms of anxiety, COVID, coping with adults, and then you're mentioning children, how does that fit into what we've been talking about, That turning it into a positive kind of a, experience for all of us. Yeah, we, I mean, if, if anything is defined the era of COVID, it's uncertainty because we don't, you know, just remember just a couple of years ago, how little we knew, right? And every day is full of uncertainty and loss uh, for so many of us. I believe that anxiety is actually our helpmate in navigating that uncertainty you know, you hear all the headlines and you see them very attention-grabbing. You know, this is a crisis of, you know, anxiety disorders are going off the charts, and actually they're exactly as off the charts as they've been for the past 20 years. So what's happening? When we look at the data, we actually see that some anxious folks didn't do worse during the pandemic. They actually were doing as well, if not better. Some people were actually able to see this moment of uncertainty and anxiety and 
and realize, wait a second, my anxiety also helps me prepare. It helps me, you know, I remember when we, I was wearing, uh, you know, gloves and, you know, when I went to the grocery store and I was, when we could first even go out in public, it was exciting. And my anxiety about safety made me make some very good choices in the beginning. My anxiety about my kids and how they would be doing in Zoom school made me really lean in to finding as many opportunities for enrichment as I could. It made me creative. It made me persist in finding solutions. So, so at the same time, yes, some people suffering from anxiety, it has been much harder, especially getting back out into the world after suffering from social anxiety. But we have to see anxiety as that double-edged sword. Instead of saying it's always bad, we can see the moments where it gives us useful, interesting, important information if we give it a chance, if we're curious about it. If instead we say, oh my gosh, any sign of anxiety is something I need to suppress or medicate, that's exactly the way to make anxiety worse and even send them down the path towards anxiety disorders. So I believe that the first step in working with our anxiety, which is a feature of being human, it's not a bug. We evolved to have it to be helpful. Uh, the first step is being open and just curious about it. Just consider for a moment that it might not be a malfunction. Consider for a moment it activates us. Like, you know, it gives us energy like a wave. Yes, you can drown in a wave, but you can also ride it forward. You can surf it. You can learn to swim. And I think if we shift our approach just a little bit to thinking of it this way, we will own anxiety more than it will own us. We will work with anxiety more than it works against us. And that's the basic premise of my book and my mission, really. So if we own anxiety, we as individuals, and that's a good thing, how do professionals fit into this? Because I know the first thing uh, you know, sometimes when you go to a doctor for the first time, they'll, you know, give you a sheet of things to answer. And one of them, have you ever been anxious or depressed or whatever? And the, you know, psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, and just general practitioners, sometimes the first thing they want to do is give you medication just to help you get over it, just to like take the edge off things. And this still seems to be something that professionally uh, is out there and that is sometimes the first response. I think that's a huge mistake. I'll say it very, very um, directly. I think that there are some people for whom medication is a necessary support, but it was always designed to only be used as a temporary help. And all the evidence suggests that when medication is effective for people, it's combined with behavioral and cognitive therapies. So that we need to think of medication not as a first-line defense, but as a necessary first step for people who just can't get down to a baseline to benefit from other therapeutic approaches. I also think of it as sort of, you know, if you go with the old adage, give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, teach a person to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. Medication is the fish. It can help you in the moment, but we need to learn to fish if we're really going to sustain mental health. And remember, mental health is not the absence of anxiety. We have gone through decades of this very dangerous, in my opinion, destructive view that all emotional discomfort is a problem. And it's just not true. Part of being human, it's, it's about experiencing these emotions. So if we immediately numb them, if we are uncomfortable with all kinds of emotional discomfort, we will lose opportunities to actually be what, um, you know, this is a term that uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, coined called anti-fragility. Anti-fragility is that we grow stronger through challenge. Fragility is that we break like a china teacup into a million pieces. Humans are not fragile. Our emotions are not fragile. We are anti-fragile like the immune system. 
if you throw viruses and bacteria at it, that's a, if you give a, you know, it's like, that's why when we challenge our immune system, it can mount an immune response. And it's the same way with our emotions. We can master them. We can work with them. Sometimes we need help. The first line of defense should not be medication. Let's talk about emotional discomfort, because I think that's something also that's pervasive in our society that is not working for us, as you described. I mean, emotional, we are, we start with birth, getting medicated when you're having babies, making sure there's no pain, or when you die, making sure that nothing looks bad that's going to make people feel bad or anxious, you know, fake grass and, and, uh, yeah. whatever we get, uh, fake everything <laughs> and, and we fake it. And, but that, that's the beginning and the end, but all in between. And I think you touched on that too, with our kids, we don't want them to feel bad. We don't th- want them to feel sad. We want them to always feel good and always feel happy. And that's not a good thing. So as a society, we have, uh, you know, to change this paradigm that you've been talking about, your book is going to, is, is there, but other is great. And what else are we doing? Mm-hmm. Is there any, uh, you know, are we doing anything else to sort of um, stop trying to put the kibosh on feeling numb or emotional discomfort? Uh, well, we end up feeling numb, but this emotional discomfort, we need to celebrate it. We need to move forward. We need to be, uh, it's, it's exhilarating. Um, are you the only one saying this? No, I think I think it's you know I see little signs of it. I don't. I hope I'm not the only one saying it. Um, but I feel like there's this like guys talking. I feel like there are conversations now where we've learned that this toxic standard of positivity, of flawlessness, of perfectionism, this constant drive for human, you know, to, to kind of to always be totally like totally happy all the time, as if mental health equals the absence of uncomfortable feelings. It's absolutely the opposite. So I think that, and we see this, as you mentioned, too, with all sorts of pain. You know, so you see the op- opioid epidemic. I don't think that's any different in some sense from the benzodiazepine epidemic, the anti-anxiety med epidemic. Both are killing people, and both are coming from a stance of needing to immediately squash all sorts of pain. And both, I think, for many people, for many professionals, is largely well-intentioned, but we can't make that excuse anymore. We have to move past this idea that the goal is to make everyone comfortable. We're, we're tying one hand behind everyone's back by doing that. You cannot be a human in this world unless you celebrate the messiness of being human. And then, and then you know, honestly, it's like being an al- al- you know, kind of almost like an alchemical <laughs> magician. Like I was, I was thinking about this the other day. If we think of our emotions, even our really difficult ones, as ways of being in the world that energize and give us information and sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down and they can be transformed into wisdom. All these experiences are part of human wisdom. And if we cut them off, we're cutting off what it means to be human. So I think we should move towards an attitude of engagement and transformation and doing the hard work. We humans are up to it. We can do these hard things. We can feel hard emotions. I think this needs to be the movement taking us into the 21st century. Well, in doing that, I'm thinking, I don't know, is it Crosby still in Nash, but teach, we have to teach our children well, and we have to start oh, with boy. that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as you're talking about kids, I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, when your kid loses the, the game or doesn't get the prize, well, then we're going to take you out and give you an ice cream cone. We'll do something this. We'll make you feel better <laughs> rather than this really yeah. sucks. It feels terrible. Let's talk. You know, I, I get it. And where can we go from here? But we don't tend to do that. And uh, you see it all the time with parents 
grandparents. Um, so in this, I yeah. agree and entirely. Yeah. I, I think we, and if we can get the message to parents, Hey, you, you know, being, you know, there's no being a perfect parent cause there's so much pressure on us. I have a 13 year old and a 10 year old, so I'm in it, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, and <laughs> right there's so much it. pressure, in the midst, yeah. you, you know, and what I think we need to tell, and this again, it's on us professionals. We have to do a better job. We have to say, listen, the best thing you can do for your kid is fail together, mm-hmm. is know that failure is part of getting to excellent. It's not, it's not, it's not a diminishment, you know? And when we can teach kids to feel, knowing how to feel bad is the key to feeling good. Knowing how to fail is the key to success. And if we can just say this over and over again, play it out in our own lives with our kids, not just, you know, talk the talk, but actually walk, walk the talk or walk the walk, <laughs> do all of that. You know, I think that these are the conversations that need to be at the forefront now. Do you know somebody or many somebodies who do it really well that you can talk about? Um, in terms of parenting? Mm-hmm. Who, who do exactly as you've described that, you know, we're going to oh, fail geez. together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I see, you know, I feel like I see it here and there all around me. I feel like, you know, and my, you know, I'm raising my kids in Manhattan, which is a challenge. And there, and we, you know, there's this big phenomenon that I think we've all talked about called snowplow parenting, which is what you're describing, really. This not just helicopter parenting where you're hovering, but a snowplow parent removes all obstacles to perceived success or happiness, right? And so I think there's been a backlash in the past three or four years in my community of parents where we're saying, hey, listen, um, we're actually not doing our kids any service when um, when we're when we're not allowing them to to work through stuff and to and to do the hard work and to fail at times and pick themselves back up. So I see some of these conversations. I feel like one one thing I'm doing with my friend group and and my parenting group is also constantly. I and it's in my book too. I talk about my parenting fails all the time, and I have massive ones. <laughs> and and the beauty of that. Um, is that, you know, I have a, a story where I, I literally fear-shamed my son. And can you imagine? This is like I'm supposed to be the anxiety expert. And I shamed him about his anxiety about learning to ride a bike. And I didn't realize it, till, but I had inadvertently recorded myself on my iPhone speaking. <laughs> so I, I played it back, and I realized, what you know, what I had done and how really unhelpful it was and how unfair it was. But, you know, but I was able to actually play that recording for my son and say, hey, bud, wait a second, I was making a mistake here. And let's talk through why it made perfect sense for you to be anxious about learning to ride the bike. And how our own anxiety, we parents, our own anxiety about our kids' anxiety is keeping us in a straitjacket instead of freed to talk about our mistakes, acknowledge them, and show our kids that we can make mistakes and come out stronger. So I think those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to do in my life that I see in, um, see around me that I think are really crucial to, to helping our kids um, actually live well with anxiety and be anxious in the right way. So the first step you're saying is parents have to be aware of what they're doing. I mean, that example is a perfect example, shaming your kid in terms of riding a bicycle. And I get that. Like, it's just get on the bike and ride it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> just do it. Uh, don't say that. That's not a good thing. That, you know, he falls off or she falls off and uh, you're frustrated and you're pushing and I can picture the scenario because I've done it myself. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's it. I transcribed it actually. So it's word yeah. for word in the book. <laughs> 
But you were able to step back and say, what am I doing? That's the first step. But then yeah. the other thing, you were discussed it with your son. You know, sometimes people get yeah. through the first step. Oh, what did I do? I won't do it the next time. But then to be able to communicate to your child that this is what I did, that's that's key also. And that's another step, I think. It's in the being whole okay with vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, because part of our fear, the reason we revile anxiety is we don't feel comfortable with our own vulnerability. And so when we can say to our kids, hey, I was anxious about your anxiety. I was, and, and I'm vulnerable right now because I was wrong. And we, you know, and, and we can work through this together. Those are gifts that we can give to our children and to ourselves because it's this anxiety about our kids' anxiety and, and, and not being able to take that step back that I think really prevents us from using our creative powers as parents to be, you know, all of us have these amazing parents inside us. And I almost feel like the self-help world out there gets in the way of that, of trusting our instincts, of being real, of feeling like we have to, if we don't check off 20 of the 20 boxes on the good parenting checklist, that it's just, we might as well just, you know, go home, you know, forget about it. (laughs) And that's very destructive. Again, it's this attitude of, you know, you can't be in process. It's all or none. Like good parenting, is that a good or it's bad? Anxiety, it's either good or bad. It, mental health is the absence of, you know, it's either you feel good all the time, right? Or you don't, you know, or, you know, or, or, or you fail. And it's just wrong. That's not how we work as humans. And good parenting evolves. You don't, you know, you don't give birth and then you're this great parent. Far from it, right? Uh, but maybe that's the expectation. You were talking about perfectionism. No, it, it evolves, and, and we have to go through all what we've described, what you've described in the interview. You have to, and you are in a very, I'm thinking of you in, in uh, New York City, as you mentioned, and you have to do this in the context of a very competitive environment, starting from day one. That's a whole other set of, I guess, uh, issues that you have to deal with, and which... You are, obviously. Um, three minutes left. Um, let's talk about website and or websites we can go to for more information about your work, what you do, the book, yeah. great yeah. book, Future Tense, Why Is Anxiety Good for You? Thank you. Yes, you can go to drtracyphd.com, and there's all sorts of information about the book, about um, readings. Um, I also am an active scientist and I have bunches of publications. People are interested in that as well. But I really love to communicate with people so you can find everything there. I'm also um, on Instagram at dr.tracyphd and also I'm on Twitter um, at Tracy A. Dennis there. Actually, that's an old account. Okay, well, there's no excuse. We can find you everywhere, which is a good thing. (laughs) So thanks so much for being on the show today. This was great. Great conversation. Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari, PhD. Future Tense is the title of her book. Have a good one. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Thank, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs>